HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit rt11.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. And coming to you live every week on The Farm Report, we're talking all about the what's what and the who's who of the food production space. Today, I'm excited to wish Blueberries a happy 100th birthday. For those of you who may not know, it is actually Blueberry Appreciation Month. Um, so happy July, happy Blueberries. And, and that is definitely our topic for today's show. We are joined on the line by Amelie Oust from Fall Creek Nursery. Amelie, welcome to, to, welcome to the Farm Report. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I want to be clear that the blueberries we're talking about today um, are not wild blueberries. If you're interested in learning more about wild blueberries, definitely check out Farm Report episodes 182 and 214, where we go into wild blueberries at length. But we are talking about high bush berries today. So maybe as a jumping off point, you can talk a little bit about the difference between the blueberries you work with at Fall Creek and wild blueberries. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So all commercially grown blueberries are farmed, uh, meaning the land and the crops are managed. And wild blueberries are often referred to as, as low bush because they go, grow close to the ground. Um, the main growing area for these is in the northeast and Maine and eastern Canada. And they're usually found as a frozen product or in food processing. Um, cultivated blueberries, which is what we're, we're celebrating this month, uh, are often called high bush blueberries, and they grow on bushes that can reach up to six feet or taller. They tend to be bigger berries, and these are the ones that you would find fresh in the market. So the fresh blueberries most consumers are familiar with are these uh, cultivated high bush blueberries. 
And so those are actually were, were created here in the U.S., right? I, I feel like there it was a woman, Elizabeth White, um, a cranberry farmer actually out in New Jersey, who did some tinkering in her backyard to create the high bush berry. Is that right? That's right. And actually, you know, as a, as a woman myself in the industry, uh, this is one of those stories that I grew up with my dad telling me as this legend. And, and it's really fun to have the chance to celebrate this today. Elizabeth White had a passion for farming there up in New Jersey, and um, she had a vision for what the blueberry could become and, and uh, went out and collected uh, different uh, wild cultivars that had bigger berries and really made the first commercial planting of blueberries uh, in the world. And uh, every blueberry we eat today that's a cultivated blueberry can, can trace its roots back to this one uh, plot on her farm. It's just an amazing story. I know, and we're not talking about a small industry here either. Um, you know, blueberries are an, an almost $1 billion industry in the United States alone. Um, so I think, you know, we've come a long way in the last 100 years. Now, you and your family have a long history in the blueberry business. Um, maybe you can give us a, a sense of, you know, why you felt like it was right to kind of continue the, the work for blueberries. Did you, did you consider doing some other stuff, or were you always kind of certain that you were going to be working with the nursery? You know, it's funny. I think most kids who grow up in a family business will swear they'll never come back, and my brother and I were probably no exception, but... You know, as we went through college and studied our own um, our own things, we just realized how much we learned through osmosis growing up, how much we loved nursery, how much we loved the blueberry industry. It's an exciting product. It's one that we're proud of. And so really both in our early 20s, we, uh, uh, my brother and I said, we, we love this. We're passionate about it. We've studied very different things, but luckily as the industry has grown, it's required, you know, more sophistication and, and lots of training, and so we felt we could pave our own path and build professional careers, and now our uh, our company has a whole team of people, not just us, that are uh, serving, uh, we produce plants and we serve growers throughout the industry, so we, we get to work with everyone, and it's really a joy. Yeah, well, I was um, looking at the website earlier and, it, you know, outlined under kind of like your areas of responsibility there were intellectual property, um, the licensing department, and varietal development. Um, and I think, you know, when folks think about growing blueberries, those may not be, um, you know, for just kind of us everyday folks at the top of our list. So let's maybe talk a little bit about what it means to run a nursery. So, you know, we don't go, you're not running a farm where we go and pick berries or you sell berries, um, but but you're running a nursery operation. So what does that mean exactly? What that means is that uh, we have... Um, uh, lots of, I mean, if, if we were to visualize it, we have greenhouses and we have kind of can or gravel space where we uh, uh, propagate and multiply plants to make um, actually millions of blueberry plants in a given year. And we grow them to be large enough uh, to be planted in the field, much like uh, many of your listeners would find in a garden center, in a local garden center, when they would go and buy a plant, say, in a pot. Well, we produce those on a large scale 
uh, to serve farmers. And so our customer are the growers that produce the fruit that you would buy in the grocery store. So sometimes when, I, when I'm talking with folks, they say, gosh, what do you do? What's a nursery? And, and I say, well, that fruit you buy in the grocery store, chances are they're from our plants. And so we're kind of two degrees away from the berries in your hand. And, and why is that? I mean, why, if I want to, you know, open up a blueberry patch in upstate New York, am I not just going and, like, planting a blueberry seed in the ground and, and starting from there? Sure. Well, um, you know, it's it's always possible to go from uh, from seed, but you would really need uh, – it's, it's not so um, – easy to get a robust plant from a seed. And the thing about blueberries is that once you have a plant established, a good blueberry plant should should produce for you for 10, 15, even 20 years. Wow. And so what we've found is that if you start with a really robust, healthy, vigorous, disease-free, true-to-type blueberry plant, it really pays dividends long-term, just like anything. If you start with quality, you get quality. And so that's really for us as a family why we find so much um, so much satisfaction in doing what we do because when we do good work, it impacts our customers in a great way. And uh, so, so that's, that's why we do what we do. So you guys are producing, you know, it's not like there's just one a type of blueberry. I mean, you grow, um, of, you know, the breeding component uh, of your work is, is a big part of what makes your operation special. And also I think probably what drives people to you is they know they're going to get good quality, um, stock when, when they purchase plants from your nursery. So can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the, the breeding program? And when you're looking at, um, developing new varieties, what does the process kind of look like? What's the kind of historical landscape has been? And, and, and I'm curious, like, how that maybe is different in the 2000s than when your parents um, started the operation. Sure, absolutely. So breeding is a big part of all agricultural crops. And, you know, Fall Creek, we, we have a breeding program ourselves, but we really collaborate with breeding programs that you know, universities around the U.S., other companies. And breeding in blueberries is using traditional breeding methods where essentially uh, we are the bee and um, uh, develop and select over time. It's a long process. And uh, much like, you know, most people don't realize that there are lots of varieties of blueberries, um, it's kind of like if you go to the grocery store, and many people are familiar with different varieties of apples. Mm-hmm. And so behind that clamshell of blueberries, there's years of investment to um, uh, test and trial lots of, lots of berry varieties. And, you know, breeding can, um, breeding is really a, a lifeblood of um, improving that eating experience. And really, you know, as we sit here in the 100-year birthday of blueberries, thinking about what does the next 100 years of this legacy bring? And, you know, when we look at breeding for this, uh, we're looking at, you know, blueberries have the power to inspire healthy eating from kids I have a toddler at home uh, through all the ages. And so we're trying to develop varieties that really delight that consumer, that make the eating experience wonderful, whether it means they're firmer, crisper, taste better, 
um, last longer, all naturally bred and selected. And the whole idea is to raise the bar so that this legacy can continue and um, really uh, put something fun into our healthy eating plan. Yeah. Well, so kind of on that note, you know, kind of hearkening back to some of the areas that you oversee, um, I want to talk a little bit about licensing and intellectual property, because obviously if you're working in collaboration with universities and other producers, when we think about kind of uh, ownership of different types of varieties of blueberries, is that is that a thing? Like if I am a farmer, I can only get the varieties that you sell, or is it more like the the varieties that you, you guys sell I can get from other producers, but I know that for other reasons, maybe your plants are going to be stronger. Can you talk a little bit about kind of ownership rights as they relate to this kind of um, breeding development? Sure. So plant breeders' rights are something that are um, very common all over the world. And Really, the way that I put this in context in blueberries, especially blueberries, because we're such a, um, one of the things I, I really enjoy about this industry is how collaborative it is. And growers know that for them to really delight people long term and have berries that taste good, are fresh, or all these things, it's so important to them that these breeding programs continue. And so, really, I see the licensing as a tool where we work with the whole industry to um, really organize the effort because breeding a new variety can take 20 years, mm-hmm. and that's expensive. And so, really, you know, there there might be many things, uh, many stories out there where you hear the word licensing and people shudder, but um, I really see it in blueberries as a building block and something that allows the growers to um, get access to these varieties from these breeding programs, and it's a way for the breeding programs to fund uh, the innovation. Because otherwise, um, things would things would halt, and I don't think we would have the same legacy for the next 100 years. So it's a pretty open, uh, collaborative industry, and the licensing just helps us organize it. To keep it, yeah. Well, no, it makes sense, too, and I also, I think a lot when I, you know, around of licensing and ownership issues I think can get contentious contentious in certain communities really quickly but I do think that you bring up a good point as like how do we incentivize um, moving forward in in these industries and if we're thinking about things at a scale that you guys are working at um, there does have to be some return on that investment for, for that research. Now, you guys have production facilities in different regions throughout the U.S., but is the U.S. your primary market for plants, or do you serve a global population? Great question. So uh, the U.S. and Canada here in North America is absolutely our primary uh, focus. It's where our roots are. It's, uh, it's North America produces the majority of blueberries around the world. It's just, it's, and it's the home, you know, it's the home of this crop. But the thing that's been so, so fun, actually, and exciting in these last years has been the growth of blueberry growing and consumption around the world. You know, we, uh, when uh, producers want to be able to, you know, first it started where uh, producers wanted to be able to provide berries to American consumers uh, more months out of the year. 
and that's still a big driver. But now we see consumption of blueberries skyrocketing around the world. So this global growth is is really being driven by people discovering this blue gem, if you will, and wanting to bring it to their their families. And so even uh, from a culinary standpoint, watching, say, uh, in Mexico or in Chile or Peru or in Europe and, and even over in China and South Korea, watching them incorporate blueberries into their local cuisine has been so fascinating and so fun to, to watch this, you know, really this American uh, 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 crop be translated into these different culinary languages, if you will. So it's a, it's a really big time for blueberries as we kind of uh, uh, adventure around the world. Yeah, well, I think, too, I mean, and I feel like that that momentum has been going on for quite some time. And you think I see in the news almost, gosh, I would say on a weekly basis, you know, blueberries listed as a superfood or a power food and like, um, you know, extra kind of like health points for for eating blueberries. And I think as folks become more and more kind of health conscious, they are looking for these like, uh, you know, fixes, these like easy diet fixes or I feel like blueberries slide really nicely into that space. Well, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and get a, a touch geeky when we're looking at. So one of the things I was pulling up is um, some information on the different varieties that you grow. And I want to talk about when you're thinking about uh, a variety, what are some of the factors that make things um, work or not work in different areas? And so, um, you know, I noticed listed um you know, in addition to kind of the name and some general descriptions of like flavor, um, you know, talking about things like universe, uniformity, um, kind of post-harvest life, um, talking about like the tissue, but also kind of the bush habitat. Um, so I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can kind mm-hmm. of take us through um, if I'm a, you know, if I'm a blueberry farmer and I'm kind of like deciding what I want to grow for the next season, what are the kind of criteria I'm looking at for both you know, what I want the end blueberry to look like and how I want it to behave after I pick it, but also what makes sense for me on the farm? Like, how are we thinking about it from the farmer's perspective? Absolutely. Great question. So when I think about uh, a, a blueberry variety and how we size these things up, I really categorize in my mind two, two types of value that that's got to bring. One type is, in my mind, supply side. That's really the grower's perspective. You know, growers, whether you, there's so much pressure on growers these days, and whether you're a small grower, medium-sized grower, large grower, you care about the supply side reality. It needs to be a vigorous plant. It needs to have yield that will be enough to cover your costs. Um, if it uh, ripens uniformly, it'll be less expensive to pick because you won't have to go through the field as many times. Um, the firmer it is, the longer shelf life it might have. You know, so as a grower, um, any variety that we collaborate with, say, universities on to bring uh, to market has to be something where the growers can be successful because there's just so much pressure there, and we're there to help them do that. But the other side of it is the market side. That's what, uh, that's the part where these berries have to taste good and be enjoyed. 
And that's a whole other set of uh, characteristics that we can't lose. They need to taste good. You know, they need to have great color. They need to crunch in your mouth. They need to not be moldy. You know, there are, there are certain characteristics you can look for to, say, with a small scar in the back of the berry that can help reduce um, access to moisture. So I think that, um, you know, as, as we look at these varieties, um, we think about that supply side for the grower because we've got to take care of the grower. Um, but then we can't forget about the people who are enjoying them because those are the people, if they're enjoying what they're getting, they're going to come back for more. Right. So that's kind of how I break it down. Yeah, and I think about when we talk about um, where maybe some kind of breeding breeding work has gone off course, I think a lot about kind of the, the, the big red but like flavorless dry tomatoes that we get that, yeah. you know, essentially they, they like yeah. are easy to pick and they travel really well and they look really pretty, but they don't taste very good. Um, and exactly. you think about the kind of pendulum swinging, uh, in an industry like this, where you're kind of, you know, you're trying to make decisions from a breeding standpoint that, that serve both of these spaces. I'm wondering if you can share with us, you know, you sit in such a unique position having growing up in the midst of the blueberry industry. Have there been kind of like trends that you've seen over the years where, um, you would say were kind of like high points or lower points or, um, where consumers are really kind of looking for different things? Because when I think about blueberries, I'm like, mm, I want them to be like, you know, a big-ish size and to like taste sweet and, and fresh and bright. But I don't really think about it much more than that. You know, I think a lot of these, I think one of the reasons why you might feel that or experience that is that this change is so gradual. Mm -hmm. It's so gradual because it's constant incremental improvement. And so to me, the the real high point, if I put together what are the key things in blueberries that are happening that will really impact people, um, real high points are supply is increasing. And so this is only going to benefit consumers because there will be more blueberries, they'll be more affordable, and so we're going to get access to blueberries to use more, afford, and to incorporate into our lives. So I think that, to me, that's a huge jump forward. Um, uh, another, another thing is just what people will experience in the next 10, 15 years that I think will be just, you know, exciting milestones are real improvements in uh, crispness and flavor. I think that uh, just like what we've seen happen with the grapes, through since the 90s, I think we're on a similar track with blueberries to really have that crunchy, uh, um, you know, fresh type of uh, good-tasting blueberry, and we're going to see that more and more. One of the big complaints among consumers has been inconsistency of quality, mm -hmm. and uh, I think that um, we're going to see a lot more consistency, higher availability, and uh, hopefully... Um, great prices, not just for uh, for consumers, but for growers as well, so they can keep doing their business. So, I think well, it's it's all pointing in a good direction. Well, yeah, I think increased availability makes me think, of course, right away of seasonality. Um, and is there a time that we like should be eating blueberries or or shouldn't be eating blueberries? I mean, I know here in Brooklyn, where I'm located, that you know blueberries um, have begun to come into the farmers markets here, and we'll get to enjoy them for. Uh, the next couple of weeks as far as like local production goes 
Um, but when you're looking at things at a national scale, is there like a, is there like a blueberry, like time clock where you're like, okay, from, you know, December to, to February, we get blueberries from this region and it kind of like moves around the country like that so that there is a consistent supply year round for, you know, grocery stores or, or other kind of outlets that are looking to have something to offer to their customers year round. Um, do we think about seasonality in a different way now with regards to blueberries? You know, it's such a good question, and and I think my answer is it depends. It depends on on who you are. If you if you're looking for local supply and uh, a local production or U.S. production, you can really find, um, especially if you're in in New York. You know, starting in um, April, uh, we have some uh, the the blueberry crop will start from down in the Florida industry, parts of California, and really move on north and and really you can get somewhat local US Canadian production through August September. So that's a big chunk of the year. Now from just a grocery store standpoint, um, blueberries are such an incredible berry because they can travel. These are these are strong little blue balls of marbles. I mean they're just amazing. So what we're finding is as global growth happens, uh, whether the berries are coming from Chile or Argentina or from Mexico, more and more out of Mexico, I I don't think it'll be uncommon to find blueberries every week of the year in the mm-hmm. coming years in the grocery store. So seasonality, um, I know that, uh, you know, it depends on, you know, your decisions and where you want to source your food. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a big season from the U.S. and Canada for a big part of the year. But if you are looking for uh, year-round supply, um, that is that is at our fingertips too. So we really have options right. now. Yeah, and I think too, it's like we often talk about. Um, you know, people have different buying criteria from you know things that are produced in a way that they feel are kind of sustainable or local or they're mm-hmm. price conscious or they're nutrition content conscious. And like, there's a lot of factors that go into our purchasing decisions. Well, one of the things I want to talk to you about just, um, well, I have two, two, which kind of, I'm like bouncing a little bit off the Apple industry. Cause I'm curious. I know when we talk about apples, we talk a lot about a primary market and a secondary market. Um, so, you know, you have the apples that you eat in the store, um, that are like kind of the big, beautiful showcase pieces. But we know that there are a lot of animal apples that aren't produced that like they don't, they're not a good fit for that. So they go into, you know, juices or, or sauces or, or, um, you know, dehydrated to be put in cereals. Is the blueberry market similar to that? I'm just wondering how it breaks down between like what blueberries, how much of the, the like harvest is going into fresh blueberries that you're seeing in the store and how much it's making its way into other products. Absolutely, and actually, I'm I'm glad you asked this because this is such a, it's such um, uh, an exciting part of of cultivated blueberries right now. So about half of cultivated blueberry production goes fresh, and that's what you would you know get in the grocery store, eat fresh out of the palm of your hand. And about half goes in what we would call processed, but really that's non-fresh, so dried, frozen, um, uh, juice, puree, etc. And we see so much product development going on right now in healthy, convenient, self-stable products with pure blueberries in them. 
with and companies are are starting to get really innovative with low to no sugar added and uh, all kinds of things to try and say okay how how can we take this this food that kids to adults love that's very healthy and make it even easier to incorporate them in uh, in more ways in your day-to-day life. So it's about half, and um, so you'll find lots of products, but more and more as, as they come, and I'm I'm especially excited about the, the low to no sugar options that are coming out there that, you know, it's one thing to put um, a, blue, a blueberry in a sugary treat. It's another thing to make a treat that tastes great that you want to give your kids and you know it's going to be healthy. And uh, so anyway, I'm as a mother of a toddler, I have to be about convenience sometimes whether I like it or not. Yeah, no. I also keep thinking about when I was growing up, we were we were a lenders bagels family. They're like, you know, the bagels you get in the freezer section that come six to a yeah. pack. And I always thought it was so wild that the blueberry lenders bagels were actually it was not actual blueberries in them, but like apples kind of dyed yeah. to look like blueberries. And I, I mean, I was like, I didn't even know that was like an option that you could have like a non-blueberry blueberry and something. So definitely a trend yeah. where we're getting like more directly, like what, what we're thinking we're getting is, is awesome. Well, the other kind of corollary to the Apple industry, you know, there was a lot of news earlier this year around, um, the Arctic Apple looking at kind of some um, GE technology for um, making apples not go brown when you slice them and um, some kind of, you know, research and propagating that type of a fruit. And I'm wondering from where you sit, is there um, is there interest to move outside of the traditional breeding space to tackle some like challenging problems of blueberries? Is that something that you see kind of a d- development or research happening in, in using non-traditional breeding technology? You know, at this point in time, it has not been a direction that we've wanted to go. I think blueberries, especially being such an inspiration and poster child for health, um, it's not a necessary thing for us to do. We're really focusing on that tried and true approach. And so as an industry, it's been pretty in- inspiring to watch us um, take it step by step and to uh, really so far stick to the traditional methods. We just um, we, we just feel like there's such a, uh, you know, it's part of the blueberry identity to right. do this, this um, you know, this traditional crop. And, and again, back to the 100-year anniversary, you know, there are photos of Elizabeth White out there in her apron and her pearls in this field. No kidding. It is, it's just, you look at the photos and you think that they're, they can't be real, but they are. And I think that, you know, the, the blueberry industry at its heart is run by family businesses, large to small. And family businesses have the opportunity and the responsibility to plan really long term. So I think that there's, uh, call us old fashioned. But I think we, we just have such a commitment to this traditional uh, approach while trying to innovate uh, with our consumer in mind. So it's, it's a balance, but so far we haven't gone in that direction. Yeah, it sounds like almost it feels a little bit off-brand for the blueberry industry. Well, exactly. we just have a couple minutes left, but I did want to get a chance to touch on some of your work through the Blueberry Health Foundation. Um, if you can tell me yes. a little bit about you know where that uh, idea came from and what do you guys do? 
Sure. So I, I chair the board of the Blueberry Family Health Foundation, and it's a newer nonprofit started about 18 months ago. And what it is is a, um, a bunch of blueberry families came together, and we said, hey, uh, we've been fortunate to be really successful these last years. What if we pooled our resources uh, together and created a true nonprofit vehicle to go do good in this health arena uh, and impact children? And so we have an independent board of these gosh, tremendous people from all over the the diabetes community and from the industry. And we are working to prevent type 2 diabetes in children because now uh, what used to be, you know, type 2 diabetes was an adult diabetes uh, condition. Now children are getting it from the obesity epidemic. And it's new. It's on the horizon. But it's happening. And so I'm, um, I, I, it's one of my, my, projects right now with this great team to start prevention programs uh, for type 2 and kids. And in the meantime, we can all enjoy delicious blueberries. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Please do. We have a big season this year. Gosh, a uh, lot of fruit on the market right now and um, uh, just the perfect time to, to get your kids some handfuls because it's a, it's a great season. Awesome. Well, Amelie, thank you so much for for joining us and helping uh, talk us through uh, the work you do out of Fall Creek. It was really great to celebrate uh, 100 years of Highbush blueberries with you. Thanks for having me. If folks want to find out more about Amelie and Fall Creek Nursery, definitely find them at www.fallcreeknursery.com. We are going to take a short station break and we'll be right back with the Escape Maker segment. So hang tight. This one's called Intrigue by Obesity. We're going to be right back. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. All right, we are back, and joining us on the line is Liz Newmark. I tried to put your name together there. Oh, great performances. Thank you for taking some time to chat with us. My pleasure. I'd rather be there in person and enjoy the wonderful aromas as well, but next here time, I am. Next time, next time. Well, for folks who haven't had the pleasure of enjoying some of your food, maybe you can start by orienting us a little bit to the type of work you guys do at Great Performances because there's so many good things. Oh, well, thank you. Um, well, at our core, we are uh, caterers, off-premise caterers, and we work in a, a really wide variety of locations, cultural institutions, iconic locations in New York, people's homes, backyards, uh, doing delicious food with an emphasis. Our passion is really on uh, sustainability, local foods, seasonal foods, although uh, we serve a wide, wide variety of palates and flavors and preferences. 
um, because we love things interesting. We also have a 60-acre farm upstate New York in Kinderhook where we use everything we grow uh, in many different ways. And, uh, you know, we're just also involved as a company in the food landscape in New York from a nonprofit perspective, food systems, food policy, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you guys do so much, like anti-hunger work, sustainability work, uh, your work with the Silva Center. Maybe you can share a little bit about that. Sure. You know, what I'd like to say is that we, we are privileged to feed the privileged New Yorkers, but that's really not enough, especially after all these years in the business. So we love to be involved with our neighbors, uh, you know, many of whom are, are hungry, truly hungry, and, and, and underprivileged in so many ways that we take for granted. Uh, the Sylvia Center is a nonprofit that we launched in 2006 with the goal of really, you know, inspiring children to eat well, change eating habits, really focusing on what is happening from a negative perspective in terms of health outcomes that are related to food, but not doing it by telling kids what they can't eat, because I know when I was a kid and someone said no, that meant I'm going to eat as much of that as possible. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we turned them on to to great flavors, uh, just the way we get excited about delicious food, and we do it through cooking. So at its core, it's a culinary program. And, you know, you you ask yourself, how can you make good choices about what to feed yourself if you don't even know how to prepare food? So it's really very, very basic building blocks of uh, teaching food efficacy. How did you learn to cook? That's a good question. <laughs> Trial and error. Um, you know, I grew up in a multi-generational household. My grandmothers loved cooking. My mom had nothing to do with cooking until we all got married and moved out of the house. Uh, so, you know, I saw my grandmas in the kitchen. And then, you know, I just think it's hardwired into my genes. You know, I'm a Jewish caterer. So uh, somewhere it was, it was just part of, of, of what got me excited. You know, I just, I love the ingredients. I, I love going to the markets and seeing food. I love going to supermarkets and seeing food. When I travel to another country, the first thing I ask is, where's the nearest farm and where's the nearest supermarket? And, you know, once you've managed to buy those, you know, vegetables or foods, then you have to learn how to cook them. So necessity was the mother of invention. Well, one of the things I think is so interesting about, you know, catering as opposed to having, uh, you know, a restaurant space where you're serving kind of a really similar menu from night to night um, is, is that you have all this like interesting space. Like my perception is you have all this interesting space to explore. But when you're working with regional producers, you can also kind of jump in and make kind of like large purchases of super seasonal items without having to be tied to using those items kind of off-season um, or when they're, when they're not at, at their peak. I mean, you do get a, a little bit of a space to play around because you're doing events or, or one-offs where you can kind of build the menu in really strategic ways. But um, maybe that's totally wrong. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, like, what are the pros and cons of catering when you're thinking about sourcing regionally? Yeah, because, you know, let's just think what the word catering means. And that means that I'm really um, working to achieve what your goal is, not mine. Right. I'm catering to you. So we get clients with very 
firm ideas of, of what they want. And believe it or not, sometimes it's asparagus in January. And as a caterer, it has taken time, and we've gotten good at it. It's saying, you know what, if you really have to have those asparagus in January, you know, we can get to that. But let me tell you about something that's going to taste a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. So we are caterers slash educators. Uh, and to some extent, we have a lot of flexibility because people look to us for uh, trends and food is fashion, and, and we can be very, very reactive. So you're right in that sense. What's been challenging and getting easier as the whole agriculture system locally is, is really maturing is, you know, it was hard to get that. You know, I need 200 pounds of shard on Tuesday at 1 o'clock. I don't want it Monday. I don't want it Wednesday. And I don't want half of it. And, you know, we, we, we forget how short time ago it was just impossible to get that from a local farm. And the delivery systems weren't there. The hubs were, haven't been here. The aggregators weren't there. So the idea that because I have such inconsistent needs and our needs are so broad, mm-hmm. getting what we need, when we need it, and how we need it locally has been a challenge. It's certainly in the quantities that, that we do shopping. Right, right. I mean, I can't run to the farmer's If we ran to the farmer's market to buy for this weekend's party, there'd be nothing left for everybody else, <laughs> <laughs> which would be rude. So are you seeing any, I mean, I, it, it's so interesting because you guys have been operating for several decades here in the city. And I'm wondering when you look to uh, the distributors that you work with, um, are you seeing, um, you know, trends in, in changing of like what's available or the way that they're communicating to you? I mean, are you feeling hopeful? Yeah. What are those things? Well, you know, years ago, let's say 20 years ago, we used to, all of us, pride ourselves on saying, uh, and, and you've heard this, our buyers scour the markets. I mean, scouring was like, you know, the, the, the rare blue bean from the far side of the Himalayan mountains, and, 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 and we would get that. Um, and that's, you know, that was, that was you know, your, your source of pride for, forever. Um, that's over. There are people who want that. And, you know, again, I, I think, you know, being a caterer, sometimes we're asked to do things. I mean, you know, we won't do something we won't believe in or if we think it's wrong or something like that. But, but you do get odd requests. I've seen the distributors change dramatically. I mean, you know, you see Cisco pull into the loading dock and their whole truck is painted about local. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear Baldor doing incredible things in terms of relationships with farms. Uh, and so I think there's a big emphasis on, on, on responding to what consumers and, and producers, you know, like ourselves, manufacturers, are, are looking for. Um, you know, New York is a giant market, so on any given day, you are going to be seeing a tremendous amount of unsustainable uh, food being bought and sold. But it's also remarkable what's happening in terms of the response to the demand for local food. Um, so I see that really. Look at Green Market Co. You know, Grow NYC runs a wholesale delivery business from farmers to to restaurants, caterers, etc. You know, that, that wasn't here five years ago. Yeah, well, kind of on that same note, and kind of, I want to talk a little bit more about the Sylvia Center because I know you guys have an interesting event coming up this weekend that I want to 
to touch on. But before Great. we get there, um, are there, you know, working with the kids, do you see some of the same kind of uh, questions or lack of information or feelings come up with with the kids as you're working with them to build cooking skills, to build awareness around their eating that you do with, you know, some of your high-end customers or the challenges with distributors? I mean, are you seeing kind of the same issues across the board or are the kids having different challenges? No, I, I think it's the same across the board. You know, I've been in the field when we've had a group of inner-city kids up at the farm alongside a, a team-building group of very sophisticated corporate executives, and they all sort of drop their jaw when they pull a carrot out of the ground because no one has ever seen that happen before. Um, so I, I think the kids are learning at the same pace that all of us are learning, um, and the kids we see, you know, it's it's interesting. The children that we are working with in our community centers, and it's in the city here, it's in the NYCHA housing, are kids who are really interested in food. This is a generation that is growing up watching Cooking Channel, even if they're little. Uh, you know, what amazed me, the first group of kids I worked with, the boys were saying they wanted to be Emeril, and the girls were saying they wanted to be Rachel Ray. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like... Yeah, you know, they are they are really soaking up a lot of what's happening culturally and it is you can have three what how many network channel you know the cable channels are there showing food so these kids are watching it. Um so again there's so much diversity. We see kids who have a strong baseline, they're from multi-generational families where their grandparents uh, or caregivers are cooking and then we see kids who, you know, grew up in McDonald's and pizza and, and absolutely the worst kind of food. Um I'm wondering if if you can share if there's anything that you know, has come up with the kids that, you know, you thought, well, you're like, oh, man, they're really going to love this, and they just didn't really, <laughs> or vice versa, where you're like, oh, I don't know about this, and it went, like, gangbusters. Okay, the I don't know about this is usually what happens, um, and it happens around the things that we think kids are going to hate, you know, something that's green and kale-like and spinach. I've seen kids, you know, it's it's amazing. I've seen kids, even up at the farm where we work with them, uh, try beets for the first time, tomatoes for the first time. So it's um, it's it is so unpredictable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's that's really what it is. Sometimes, but the, the beauty, the the unpredictable moments that I really carry are, are when the lights go on. And they see something, and they, I mean, who who would have eaten a beet? And they say, you know, they, they cringe almost when they taste it. <laughs> and, and it's clear that they're they're really being experimental, and they're trying something that's new to them. And you know that they would really rather go for you know, that pasta dish or something else. Um, but they're they're willing. They're they're brave. They're willing to try. Yeah. Well, folks also can get a chance um, later in July, July 24th and 26th, um, Escape Maker is hosting a Farm to Table Benefit Weekend Package. So how did you guys get involved with that and what can folks look forward to from um, their time? Well, you know, I think everybody has these fantasy images of going up to a farm and being upstate and connecting to agriculture and what's going up, you know, on around it. And they don't really get the opportunity. So we we host this dinner and we thought, how great 
would it be to, when you're leaving the city, don't just come up for, you know, a short period of time. Come for a real immersive experience. And Kaylin and her group put together an amazing collection of activities with the overnight uh, to see local wineries, to go to Hawthorne Valley Farm. And there are very few farms that are really set up for receiving visitors and showing you what what it's really like to have the livestock, the fields, uh, and so many components to the agriculture. Typically, you go to a farm, and and where do you go? You go to the, the store out front. You're not really getting a sense. So we love the idea of people coming up, being part of this wonderful dinner, the wonderful evening, in the farm fields, but extending the experience to really walk away with a a very deep connection. I know this package totally appeals to my like lazy weekender vibe. I'm like, wow, all the things I would totally want to do managed by someone else, like awesome B&B stay, great dinner at a farm to support kids, Hudson River cruise, um, farm tours. Um, I I think that folks should definitely pop over to skatemaker.com to check it out because also, um, you know, it's going to benefit the Sylvan Center. And as we've just heard from you, lots of uh, great work being done there and and super exciting. So I definitely want to encourage folks to to check that out and kind of live their farm and food getaway dreams. In, in and a I, I will take very good care of anybody yeah. who comes up. But if, if this is your idea of a lazy weekend, I want to know what your idea of a busy weekend is. Well, I just mean like lazy in that like I'm always looking. I'm like, how can I not have to make any decisions and know that everything right. will be awesome? Because yeah, And the weather is <laughs> going to be great, too. So. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, just take the decisions off the board and take me around to things I know I'm going to like enjoy. And that's awesome. Well, Liz, thank you so much. I know that you are super busy. So I really appreciate you taking some time to give us a little background. And hopefully My pleasure. next time we'll be here in the studio smelling and then eating pizza after some more chatting. I look forward to that. Thank you. See you at the farm. Awesome. If folks want to learn more about the work that Liz does through great performances, check them out. www greatperformances.com. I think there may have been an extra W in there. Um, And then check out this amazing package, July 24th through the 26th uh, via skatemaker.com. Definitely a great way to get your farm fix and support some really wonderful programming, um, teaching young kids how to cook and think about food. Thank you so much for tuning in to uh, another episode of The Farm Report. I really appreciate it. I um, want to give a shout out to Jack, who did my engineering today. And, of course, Route 11 um, for sponsoring the show. Definitely love those potato chips a little bit too much sometimes. Um, my theme song was done by Obesity. We also heard from them during the break. Definitely check them out. Um, it's O-B-E-Y. City, um, but we pronounce it obesity because we're cool like that. Um, stay tuned. After the show, we've got a little uh, clip from our friends at Gunwash, one of the great uh, 35 shows here on the Heritage Radio Network. This is from episode 149, um, a piece I thought you guys would like. Uh, it's exploring taxidermy, um, not, a wor- not a world we've talked about much on the Farm Report, but something I find super interesting. You'll hear a little bit from taxidermy expert Brett. Brant McDuff. Um, he works for the Morbid, Morbid Anatomy Museum. Uh, so definitely stay tuned in for that. It'll come up right at the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. 
most taxidermists, no one is on the animal's side more than a taxidermist. Right. I mean, they're just obsessive. Brant McDuff teaches listeners about taxidermy and all of its heroes on episode 149 of Gunwash. When they were doing the Museum of Natural History and they were setting up the dioramas, there was one particular diorama that had uh, these geese. And uh, they they set up the diorama. Someone's doing the background, like painting the background and setting up the plants. And, you know, they've got a botanist doing the plants. They've got the taxidermist setting the geese. They've got an artist painting the background. And... Uh, all of a sudden, it's this big joke that the sun is in the wrong place for the direction that the geese are flying for the time of year portrayed by the foliage. Yeah, but that's the National so, Museum of History. Wow. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. But that, right. I mean, most people walking by that would have no, no zero, clue. no clue. But no. in the museum, of course, it's a huge joke. Like, hey, did you see which way the geese are flying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that awesome, um, ridiculous. So, actually, so you know the mountain gorilla. Uh, diorama, the Carl Ackley is buried in the exact spot in Africa that the gorilla uh, diorama is what? showing. So this guy, actually, oh, wow! So this yeah. guy, Carl, Car- Carl Ackley, Ackley, yeah, he's like t- tax. In other words, or tax- Ackley, it's yeah. it's debatable. A uh, a leopard attacked him once, and uh, he. He threw his arm in front of his head to protect his neck from getting bitten by the leopard. And uh, so this leopard has his arm, and the only thing he can think to do, because he's not going to wrestle his arm away from a leopard, is he jams his fist further down the leopard's throat. Right. Wow. To try and suffocate him. That's pure adrenaline. That's pure and badass. Yeah. Yeah, he, Punk was, rock. he was a tough guy. Um, and he'd been trampled by elephants, had like almost all of his bones broken by elephants. Uh, oh, yeah, he taxidermied him. Yeah, sent him off to a oh, natural history it. museum. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because back, you know, now he's seen as this sort of god of natural history. You know, he's not a. Back then, it was very common practice for a museum to send their naturalist, to send their taxidermist off on these hunting expeditions to bring back specimens to put in the museum. If you like weird radio like this, gun wash is for you all episodes available on heritageradionetwork.org and itunes this piece was brought to you by roberta's pizza robertaspizza.com thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 